Hello. We're pleased you've been able to tune in once again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. And that's why theologians describe the incarnation as the greatest miracle the world has ever seen. Can you imagine J.R. Tolkien writing himself into the Lord of the Rings and interacting with his characters? That's exactly what God did when Jesus became flesh. Jesus, holy God, born of a human woman, was God writing himself into our human existence. And the benefits are all ours. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues with his series, The Lordship of Christ. We join him now for good news of great joy. And today, we're going to continue to worship right now as we open God's word. So would you join me in prayer? Father, I stand here as your under shepherd. You are the great shepherd. And Lord, I pray that today people would sense the love of the shepherd protecting, watching over, keeping, guarding, feeding your people. And I pray, Lord, that as we open your word, it would be food for our soul, light for our path, and water for our thirst. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we approach Christmas, and as we've already heard from Jack and from John, you know John's into Christmas when he wears a tie like he's wearing today, Christmas bells and Christmas this and that and the other. And so, of course, he's into Santa Claus. So, but sometimes it's, it's we, we as Christians, we, we talk about the reason for the season and we know that it's Christ. And it may be of interest to you that I used to be a bit of a Grinch like John as well and think, oh, Christmas is just a pagan thing and they're trying to trick us into thinking it's a Christian thing. And then as you... As John said, I'm going to pinch his line, as you mature and you come to realise, stop being such a grumble guts, stop being such a Grinch and realise that actually Christmas, December 25th, is an ancient tradition of Christians. And then I know that tonight you'll probably turn on to SBS if any of you still have that channel in your list. And you'll probably hear things like it was a pagan festival developed in the medieval ages and Christians stole it and rebaptized it into a Christian thing. And that is just a load of rubbish. Just a load of rubbish. You know, the Jews believed in sacred dates. And March 25th was Passover around the time of the birth of Christ. And they believed that that's when the Annunciation would have happened to Mary. you just got to do nine months after March 25th and you arrive at December 25th and that's why the date was selected because they believed those two dates had a sacred sense to it. So I actually, and Cherry prayed, that God has granted us favour with government and leaders and so on that encourage us to do exactly what we're doing today and as Jack said who will be here to open up at 7.30 tomorrow morning uh, for our Christmas Day service that this is a great thing that we can come and remember the reason for the season. I do want to 
talk a little bit about some of the background to the theology of the reason for the season. How we understand this. And this is a message that I'm, I'm taking out of one of the phrases of the heavenly creatures who appeared on the, the night of the birth of Christ, where he declared that this was good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. And I want to show you that that expression, great joy, is a biblical expression and it's used very carefully and it's used very selectively. And I hope that you'll have an aha moment as we look at this. But to do this, we talk about Jesus the Christ becoming human. There's a couple of things that I've said throughout this series that I hope will get you thinking and I hope this will also get you thinking what we're going to have a look at now is that when Jesus Christ became human it was completely irreversible it wasn't that he was human for a time and now he's not he is still human in fact not only is he human I heard someone say this and it shocked me when I heard them say it and that is this there is now a human being who is a member of the trinity because Christ, when he became incarnate, which means in the flesh, he never ceased to be human. And the very thing that makes you human is not necessarily the carbon that makes your flesh, your body, but the stuff that makes that your flesh. And that is your genetic code that makes you you. And we know that because in seven years, I'm told by biologists, that every cell in our body essentially replenishes. And so that carbon that you had, and I actually heard Dr. James Tour say in a lecture that in the 45 minutes that this lecture has taken place, your body has already generated hundreds of thousands of cells in your body. So what is it that makes you, you, you human? It's a, a, a unique genetic code that God has given you, and God gave that to his son when he was birthed conceived I should say in Mary so this is something we I, I want us to really think about and I want us to think about it because one of the things that in studying church history you become aware of is that error that is false ideas come around and around and around and so you hear things that were dealt with by the church 15 16 1700 years ago but because our memories fade, we don't remember those things. And so I want to show you some things from some pretty ancient past. But to do that, when John says in the opening chapter of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is deliberately invoking Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God in the beginning was the Word. He calls the Word God. And the Word was with God. Well, now we have a concept that the Jewish people were beginning to realise God has an eternal Son. And we realise that as we look in Scripture, we see in the closing chapters of the book of Proverbs, there is this question posed. Who knows the name of God's Son? What is his name? So Jewish scholars began to realise that the Father and the Son 
were two beings that are both called Yahweh, which is the Hebrew term for God Almighty. The Bible says that all things were made through him, the word, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we're going to touch on this in a moment to say that the incarnation, when Christ became flesh, when he became conceived in the womb of Mary, it happened at a particularly dark time. And so when John says he's the light, the light of men, he's being very specific. And verse 14 says, And the word became flesh. And that's where we get the word incarnation from. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And John was there. He was there on Mount Hermon. He was there when he and Peter and James were taken up the mountain And just below the snow line, and you can go there today as a tourist, and you can see this thing. And I understand in The Chosen, they've actually gone there and filmed this scene where he stands in front of a cave that is known as the Gates of Hell. He stands there in this rocky place just below the snow line, which should tell you no vegetation. It's just rocky and barren. Jesus stands there. And as he stands there, Peter, James and John are going, why are we here? Why did he bring us here? And then suddenly the ground shakes. Suddenly the sky begins to light up. But then they realise it's not the sky lighting up. It's Jesus standing there, hands lifted up. Light emanating out of him. And so when John says he's the light of the world, the light of life, the light of mankind, he then says, we beheld it. We were there. We saw his glory. Peter writing in 1 Peter chapter 1 and then 2 Peter chapter 1, he can't get that vision out of his mind. He refers to it as well. We saw Jesus glorified not like light shining on him light shining out of him and he lit up that mountain and then Moses and Elijah appeared and yesterday we had an interesting dinner party where the theological discussion was in the next life will we recognize each other and the gospel writers tell us Moses appeared and Elijah appeared They must have recognised them somehow. So here's the question. When Jesus became like us, a human being, and he was born of human stock from Mary, from something that was a part of Mary, and we know that because both Matthew and Luke trace his lineage back through the lineage of Mary. How could he become a human being and yet without sin? Of course, Catholic scholars say, well, that's easy. Mary was without sin. And that creates a problem. It doesn't solve a problem. It creates a problem. And do you see the problem? How was she without sin? And on and on you go. And so what we have here is a very elegant solution, which in reading an Anglican scholar, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, he said this, very simple. When God incarnated 
and conceived his son in the womb of Mary. He did so without transmitting her sin nature. And you might wonder, how could God do that? Well, the answer is in the question. God could do that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. None of us have been tempted like Jesus was tempted. I know that because I'm like you. Because we have all been tempted to sin and we have all yielded to that temptation at some stage or another. But Jesus never did. He was without sin. We see in John chapter, uh, was it chapter 8 or chapter 5, where Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, which of you accuses me of sin? And they can't. They can't find anything to accuse him of. He was without sin. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says he was without sin. This flies in the face of one young progressive theologian I heard, a young guy, early 30s, who said Jesus was a sinner just like us. Talking with Sean McDowell, Sean said, well, in what way? Where do you get that from? He said, oh, easy, racism. He was racist. He said, well, where'd you get that from? Well, he had, he, he had that dinner up near Caesarea Philippi and the Syrophoenician woman came to him and asked for him to heal her daughter. And Jesus said, it's not good to give the bread of the children, this is imagery language, to the dogs, speaking of her. He said, there you go. That was rude and racist. And I think this guy is silly because Jesus was exchanging with that woman in a way that his own disciples would have spoken about Gentiles. And then she says this, Yes, Lord, but it's even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall off the table. And then Jesus says this to her, remember this? This ain't racist. I've never heard such great faith. I've never seen such great faith in all Israel, apart from this woman right now. That's not racist. That's doing a couple of things. That's saying no matter what your race, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter where you were born, no matter what the colour of your skin, no matter what language you speak, God loves you. And he has a plan for you that involves you coming to know his father. That's not racist. That's salvation. And Jesus did that and Jesus never sinned. And by the way, if that's the best you can come up with to say that Jesus sinned, you are in desperate territory. So how... How was it possible because God conceived Christ within Mary without transmitting to Christ her sin nature? How do we know Mary had a sin nature? Because we read in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, about verse 46, where she says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And, he goes, and she goes on and says, And I rejoice in God my Saviour. You only need a saviour if you're a sinner. And she says she needed a saviour. What was conceived within Mary, in the womb of Mary, 
was the eternal son of God. And there's all kinds of errors that creeped into the church very early on. One called Nestorianism. Nestorianism is the belief that Jesus was just a man. This is all a myth in the Bible. It's just made up. But Jesus was just a man. And at the baptism where John the Baptist baptized him, the Jesus spirit came on him. And that's when he became the Christ or filled or possessed with the Christ. And then just before the, cru- the crucifixion, the Jesus spirit left him. And so it was just some poor bloke now abandoned from the spirit of Christ, allegedly. And this was a, this was a teaching, this was a doctrine that was re- corrected by church councils very early on as nonsense. And why is it nonsense? Because it's not what the prophets foretold, it's not what the New Testament records, it's not what came out of the mouth of Jesus himself. One of my heroes was a young 23-year-old guy by the name of Athanasius, who as a young child was playing with other boys, young, you know, we're talking five, six years of age, and he would, he would play church with them. He would say, I'm the bishop, you sit down and listen to me. And the actual bishop, Antony, heard this whippersnapper doing this and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm playing bishop. What's your name? Athanasius. And so Antony said, there's something about this young man and made him his assistant. And at the age of 23, he wrote one of the most profound books I've ever read. It's called On the Incarnation of the Word. C.S. Lewis says this, that that book is one of the books that was one of the most powerful influences on his life. And in the opening preface that C.S. Lewis has written to this book, which you can get pretty much free, I think, on the internet now, we have him saying, everyone should read this, every Christian should read this. And added to that, C.S. Lewis says, for every new book you read, try and read three old ones. Because, C.S. Lewis said, most stuff that comes out that's new is rubbish. And you need to read something that's actually quite solid and good. And it was Athanasius, and I, and I remember reading this, this is section 3, verse 17, if you're going to have a look at it. This was written around about 2, was it 280? I think I've got the 318, uh, written 318. That's uh, about seven years before the Council of Nicaea, which Athanasius went to as a 20-something-year-old, and it was when he stood up and gave the arguments for Christ being the eternal Son of God, that the entire council changed. And they realised, of course. And his argument was very simple. If God is the eternal Father, and they all said, yes, then what must he have? And they went, oh yeah, an eternal Son. He said, I rest my case. And he'd actually written this massive, well, it's not actually that big, it's a, but it's a powerful book, where the question was this, when Jesus was conceived in Mary, was he still in possession of everything that makes him God? And Athanasius says, absolutely. Yes, he was. And someone posed the question, but how could he be in the womb of Mary and yet omnipresent everywhere at the same time? And Athanasius said, easy. 
So we'll leave it there, shall we? He actually said it like this. He said, essentially, imagine God as the author and he's writing the story that we're in and we're a part of his story. And imagine God can be where he's writing this story and then writing himself into the story. And people have heard this and responded positively because it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting way of imagining it. But this is what we need to understand because if you think, wow, that, that would be something. Yeah, that would be something, wouldn't it? And that's why theologians describe the incarnation as the greatest miracle the world has ever seen. They call it the miracle of miracles. Because, And I want you to get the gravity of this because we go, oh yeah, Christmas, Jesus born into the world, blah, 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 past the turkey. And we should be going, you know what? God becoming flesh, he's in the womb of Mary, yet Colossians 1 verses 15 to 18 says, by the word of his power, he sustains everything in the world, even when he was in the womb of Mary. That should cause your brain to go, and it should cause your knees to bend, your hands lift up into the air and go, what's that word? Hark. The herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. This is amazing. And Athanasius came up with this incredible thing. And so it's where... If we could put it into modern terms, we might put it into the terms which I is not original from me. But imagine if an author, a human author, wrote himself into his own story. Imagine if William Shakespeare wrote himself into Hamlet. And there's Hamlet meeting Shakespeare. <laughs> or even more modern terms, imagine if J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, wrote himself into Lord of the Rings, where he's interacting as a character in Lord of the Rings with the characters that he's writing while he's at his desk writing the story. And if you can get your head around that, you get your head around how God can be viewed as present in Christ. And this is why the prophet could say in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born... A son is given. He was already a son before he was a human child. A son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This was no mere random baby whom the so-called Christ Spirit came on. He was the Christ from eternity. The most detailed account of Christ's birth is given in Luke chapter 2. It says this, And this was, again, the thing that caused in a conversation between Tolkien and C.S. Lewis on a walk that they had together where Tolkien said to C.S. Lewis, You like myth? Yes. 
Have you ever considered that Christianity is true myth? And what is myth? Myth is where the supernatural and the natural sort of intersect and, and interact with each other. That's myth. And most myth is not true. As C.S. Lewis wrote about, he said most of it's just not true. But then he, Tolkien said, but Christianity's a different myth. Because C.S. Lewis had written it off, it's just a myth just made up. He said, no, it's not. Because in the days of the, of the decree that went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. And he said to C.S. Lewis, you know there was a Caesar Augustus and you know this census happened. This is a date, a time and a place. And this shocked Lewis, as Tolkien pointed out, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, that is, went up, he's heading south, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, which the prophet said the Messiah would be, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Notice that expression. She went on to have another, at least another six children after Jesus. And we're going to refer to one of them in a moment. And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region. Now, here's, here's the thing. This is presented by Tolkien to C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis goes, yeah, that's not the way myths work. Myths don't work in a particular place at a particular time with particular people involved in the story. And Tolkien said, exactly. And that was the stone in C.S. Lewis's shoe that eventually led him to say, there's a lot of questions I've got. I haven't got all the answers but I now know this is true. And that led to him putting his pen down one night at his desk and saying, I am the most reluctant convert in all of England. <sighs> and so if you expected God, the author, to come in supernaturally into this realm, you would expect weird stuff, would you not? You would, if we're talking supernatural and we're talking doo -doo -doo, it's coming into this world, you would expect there would be, well, I didn't see that coming. I can't explain that. And that's how the story goes. Because in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night, which is a nice way of saying minding their own business. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Not every fear that you experience is bad. And these shepherds were filled with great fear. This is weird. You don't have an angel appear suddenly, and this is not a common thing. The angel said to them, fear not. For be You've got to think, 
when an angel turns up and says to someone, fear not, what's been happening? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Why? For unto you is born this day in the city of David. And I I don't know what you think when you hear the word city of David. Like New York, like London, like Sydney. Anyone ever been to Ooze? Ooze would be like metropolis compared to the city of David back in the day. No offence if you're from Ooze. But if you blink and you drive through it, you would miss it. It's a small place. The city of David was a term given to this small village and it was given the honour of being called a city because that's where David the king was born. The city of David. A saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And Dr Luke does this all the time. He will say, Things like this. Here's the weird, wonderful, you've got to be kidding, supernatural claim. And here's how you can see and prove that it's true. Go and have a look. Remember, he did that. Gabriel did that to Mary. Remember when he says, you know, uh, blessed are you, Mary, because you are about about to bear the Son of God. And she goes, how can this be? I haven't known a man. How is this possible? And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then he says this, and your cousin Elizabeth is six months pregnant. So what does Elizabeth do after Gabriel goes? I'm just going to go and check out Elizabeth. And she does. And Luke does this all the time. Here's the fantastical claim. And here's how you can verify it. So the shepherds have been given a, a means to prove this claim. And suddenly, the angel, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. And the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So this, this angel said, I bring you news of great joy. And I'm going to say to you, this is a very, very particular expression. But let's continue the story. Because after Jesus is born, his parents, Joseph and Mary, take him to Jerusalem, to the temple, Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, a term given to the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen The Lord's Christ, and Christ means anointed one, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. 
And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He had a word from God that he had for decades, presumably, because he was now old, it says. This is weird. This is really weird. For my eyes have seen your salvation as he held the Christ child. Looking at Christ, he's talking to God. You have prepared that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And Luke, the Gentile, who's writing this gospel, is pointing out Christ did not just come for Israelites or Jews. He came for all people. This is great news. To be a light of revelation, for revelation to the Gentiles. There's Luke just telling us. This gospel is about God making one people out of many different people. And glory to your people Israel. And his father, Joseph and Mary, were standing there and they marvelled of what was said about him, Jesus. And then it gets weirder. I mean, that was weird. You give birth and some guy in a long beard and pointy bony finger comes in and says that, you're going to think this is a weird day. And then it gets weirder when he goes over to Mary and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. This child of yours, he will split this nation down the middle. Some will go with him, some won't, and he will experience much opposition. Merry Christmas. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You only got to read the Gospel of John where Jesus is with people. They don't say anything to him. And John says he knew exactly what that person was thinking. It's a weird scene where, that, where Jesus was at a dinner party of a Pharisee by the name of Simon. And there he is, you know, as they eat with the, the low table on the floor, elbow there and There's their feet stretched out there and in comes that lady who has a reputation. Everyone knew the reputation. There's Simon. He sees her come in and he goes, if Jesus knew what kind of woman that was, he wouldn't let such a dirty sinner touch his feet. And there's Jesus as she's washing his feet with her tears and then pouring perfume over his feet. This is an amazing scene where Simon's thinking all this 
And Jesus says, so then Simon, and it's as if Simon realises everything he's just thought, Jesus has just heard. Can I just give you a really encouraging thought? Jesus still does that. You may wonder, and we've talked about this, whether you've said the right words in your prayer. It doesn't matter. He hears your heart. That's exactly what Simeon said to Mary that would happen. Wow. I remember growing up hearing uh, people say things that probably contributed to my grinchiness. And it was, it was things like this. The Bible doesn't talk about being happy. It talks about being filled with joy. And I've got it. <laughs> and you just think, well, that's joy. I don't think I want it. And people would say, well, joy is not happiness. You can, well, they clearly drew that distinction very clearly. But, but there is a joy that, that it actually, despite you know, these, these people who meant well, there is a, what we call natural joy that happens when something goes well for you and you're glad about it. So joy, you know, we use that word joy and we, we mean it, I'm glad, I'm happy. And again, C.S. Lewis used this word joy because he said, I want to tell you what it means to me. It means when, when I get a glimpse of the deepest longing of fulfilment, possible for a human being i i get a whiff i get just a, a glimpse of joy and he called it joy because i just don't know what else to call it but for the rest of us we use the word joy like we're happy we're glad and so there is a joy that was spoken of by the angel that wasn't that kind of joy it was a supernatural joy the supernatural joy and if you can understand that this supernatural joy was a joy that came at a time when Israel was demonically infested with demons. It was infested with demons. There were people being demon-possessed everywhere at this time. You've only got to read the Gospels to get a glimpse of that. And so this longing of the people of Israel, their longing was for the Messiah who they remembered that if he's the son of David, he's in the line of David. And if you read my last pastor's desk, where I point this out, they longed for the Messiah to have the ability and the power that King David himself had. When King Saul was afflicted by a demon, they said, get someone who can cast out demons through music. And they got David. And whenever David played his lyre like a, a harp, the demon would leave and the reputation grew about King David and Solomon that they could cast out demons with music or a word. And that grew into the hope that when the Messiah came, perhaps he would have the same power to cast out demons. And so they longed for the son of David, the Messiah, to come and set people free. And so when Simeon talks about he will be a point of division, there's this confrontation with the forces of darkness that people knew when Messiah, the Christmas child, comes. He will grow into a man who will cast out demons from people. They longed for it. And so then we read in Matthew chapter 12 of this 
weird event. I said, if this is really God, if this is really the author writing himself into this story, you would expect weirdness. And here it comes. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And he, Jesus, healed him so that the man spoke and saw. In other words, the demon was cast out of that man and all the people were amazed. And what's their one question? Can this be the son of David? Why would they ask that? Because that was the longing that the Messiah would be the one that could set their people free from demonic oppression and possession. Dr. Luke, in writing the book of Acts, tells us about Jesus. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, Dr. Luke tells us in Acts 10.36, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee and the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is pretty good news. He's now turned up. He's casting out demons. But it gets better and weirder. Because Jesus then, when they when it turns to his disciples after they saw him doing this, and Jesus said this to them, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, metaphors for demons, all, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. But Jesus says this, you might think that's an occasion for great joy, but let me tell you what the occasion actually really is. The occasion for great joy is this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. It's pretty good, but it's not the big deal. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in that. What does it mean to have your name written in heaven? It means that you're a citizen of God's family. You've been adopted by him. You're on the birth register of belonging to God as your father. It means that if you die right now, you go to be in the presence of God. That's great news that should cause you to have great joy. Great joy. If I had the time, and we will when we do in two more instalments on this Lordship, as I wrap it up, I'll talk about the culmination of what the Lordship of Christ means. And in that, I'm going to tell you that heaven is God's temporal home. And it will be our temporal home as well, not our permanent place. You only have to read the closing chapters of the book of Revelation where it says where the dwelling place of God will be. So the redeeming work of Jesus Christ was exactly what the angel said it would be. Good news of great joy. I want you to think about this because this expression great joy is used in one of the closing books of the Bible. And it's, it's used by the brother of Jesus, Jude. I told you that Mary went on to have another six children. Four of them are named. And then it says, and his sisters, four boys are named. Two of the boys, 
James and Jude. James wrote an epistle, Jude wrote an epistle. Both of these boys, when we read in John chapter 7, went up to Jesus and said, are you going to Jerusalem to show people who you really are? And John tells us, because they did not believe in Jesus. Can you get that? His own brothers didn't believe who he was, who he said he was. James and Jude. And then something happened that transformed them into what eventually was not just apostles, but martyrs for Christ. Something happened. What happened? We read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul tells us that after Jesus appeared to Peter, James and John, he then appeared to James, the brother of Jesus and presumably Jude as well. And Jude, the former opponent of Jesus, the one who mocked his own brother, the one who publicly ridiculed him, experienced the resurrected Jesus, and all of his arguments fell away. And you know what? They still do today. And Jude wrote one of the shortest Books of the Bible. And in verse 24 and 25 of his one chapter book, he says this about his brother. This is Jude worshipping his brother. And if you want to know, that's you want to know what weird is? It's when a brother worships his brother. <laughs> now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's a supernatural joy. It's a joy that God puts within you. It's a joy that's not temporal like natural joy. It's a joy that abides in you. It's a joy that's not based on whether things are going well for you, circumstances. It's non-circumstantial or uncircumstantial. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. And Trust me, I know that's not easy. I've had a year where that has not been easy. But great joy causes you to lift your hands in the air and to worship this God and to acknowledge him because you're filled with a great joy that gives you hope beyond this world, beyond this life, that your name is written in heaven. You're in the birth registry of heaven you're a son or a daughter of God, and that's an occasion for great joy. And Jude knew it. To the only God, he says of his brother, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, a divine term. Be, hear the worship, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority or power, depending on your translation, before all time. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Lordship of Christ, Part 7, from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, Jesus entered the world at a time that was demonically dark and the people of 
of Israel longed for the Messiah to rescue them. Jesus' birth indeed brought great joy, not just a wave of happiness, but a supernatural joy. More of Finding Truth matters next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.